0: All the content you had in this podcast episode is non-commercial, fair use, creative commons license. This is the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. This is a special edition of an interview between Joseph Campbell and Bill Moyers. It's a six-part series, and this is part five. So the title of this episode is Love and the Goddess. Check it.
1: So through the eyes, love attains the heart. For the eyes are the scouts of the heart. And the eyes go reconnoitering for what it would please the heart to possess. And when they are in full accord, and firm, all three, in one resolve. At that time, perfect love is born from what the eyes have made welcome to the heart. For as all true loves know, love is perfect kindness, which is born, there is no doubt, from the heart and the eyes.
2: If there were a giant map of the world's great mythologies, you could throw a dart and anywhere it lands you find a love story, tales woven to express the heart's deepest desire. For example, the ancient Babylonian myth of Pyramus and Thisbe, two young lovers doomed by a chance mistake and bad timing. Or Echo and Narcissus, a trail of seductions that ends with a dagger through a broken heart. Tristam and Isolde, take your pick. There are multitudes of choices. The study of the mythology of love was a favorite of Joseph Campbell's. One of his best and most famous essays celebrates this universal mystery. Ask him where he would like to start, as I did during our conversations on the power of myth a quarter of a century ago, and he invariably answered, in the Middle Ages. He relished in stories of love and courtship for the noble and gentle hearts that managed somehow to transcend raw lust. Because those stories helped to create a distinctive Western consciousness, in time they would encourage personal challenges to the dogma of church and state. So love, in other words, as Joe said, could lead to revolution, even against God. Our first conversations took place at George Lucas' Skywalker Ranch in California. Like a weaver of fine cloth, Campbell spun the tales and legends of love to a marvelous tapestry of the human psyche. Let's talk about love. Let's talk about love, fine. But it's such a vast subject that, if in mythology that if I had come to you and said, let's talk about love, but where should we begin, what would your answer have been?
1: I think my answer would have been the troubadours in the 12th century, let's begin there. Why the troubadours? Well, because they're the first ones in the West that really considered love in the sense that we think of it now as a person-to-person relationship. You're talking about romantic love? Yes. It, it's the seizure that comes in uh, recognizing as, a, as it were your soul's counterpart in the other person. And that's what the um, troubadours stood for. And that has become the ideal in our lives today. What had it been before that? Well, the idea of love as Eros, the god who excites you to sexual desire. This is not the, the person-to-person thing of falling in love in the way the troubadours understood it. I have a definition for Eros, uh, the erotic biological urge as the zeal of the organs for each other hmm. and uh, the personal factor, doesn't matter. Where did Eros come from? Well, Eros is Cupid. And in India, the god of love is Kama. And he's no Cupid. He's a big, vigorous youth with a uh, bow and a quiver of arrows. And the names of the arrows are such things as death-bringing agony and open up. And uh, really, he just drives this thing into you so that it's it's a... Total physiological, psychological explosion that takes place. Uh, then the other love, uh, the Christian love of agape, spiritual love, love thy neighbor as thyself. Again, it doesn't matter who the person is. I mean, it's your neighbor. You must have that kind of love. But the kind of seizure uh, that comes from the meeting of the eyes, as they say in the troubadour tradition, and uh, <clears throat> the purely personal person-to-person thing, as far as I know, it originates as, a, um, as an ideal to be
2: lived for with the troubadours. You've said that what happened in the 12th and 13th centuries was one of the most important mutations of human feeling and spiritual consciousness, that a new way of experiencing love came to expression. Yes, And it was in opposition to that ecclesiastical despotism of the heart. Yes. Which required people, particularly young girls, barely out of adolescence, to marry whomever the church or their parents wanted them to marry. That's right. And what had this done to the passion of the heart?
1: Well, to say a word for the other before I do this, the usual marriage in traditional cultures is uh, arranged for by the families. It's not um, a person-to-person decision at all. And this is true to this day in um, many parts of the world. This is not to say that in uh, arranged marriages of this kind there is no love. There is a lot of love. There's family love and uh, a rich love life on that um, level. So in the Middle Ages, of course, that was the kind of marriage that was sanctified by the church. And so the idea of, uh, of a real person-to-person marriage was very dangerous. It dangerous was, because it was heresy. It was not only heresy, it was adultery. And that was punishable by death. For instance, in the, in the Tristan romance, that, that's the crucial romance. Uh, of Tristan this. and Isolde? Yes. Isolde was engaged to marry King Mark. They had never seen each other. And uh, Tristan is sent over to fetch Isolde to Mark. And uh, Isolde's mother prepares a love potion so that uh, the two who are to be married will have real love for each other. And these two youngsters, they think the love potion is wine, and they drink it and then they're overtaken with this love. But Brangain, the nurse of Isolda, realized what had happened. She went to Tristan and said, you have drunk your death. And Tristan said, if by my death you mean this agony of love, that is my life. If by my death you mean the punishment that we are to suffer, if discovered, which is namely execution, I accept that. But if by my death you mean eternal punishment in the fires of hell in which these people believed, I
2: accept that too. That was uh, quite... That's big stuff. ...for a medieval Catholic because they believed in a literal hell. Well, these people did. Yes. So what's the significance of what he was saying? What he was saying is that
1: this love is bigger even than death than pain, than anything. This is the affirmation
2: of the pain of life in a, in a big way. And I would choose this pain for love now, even though it might mean everlasting pain and damnation in hell. That's right. And that was a marked change in how people... Well, that is an, uh, any life career
1: that you choose in following your bliss should be chosen with that sense. Nobody
2: can frighten me off from this thing. This is sort of the beginning of uh, the romantic idea of the Western individual taking matters into his or her own hands. Well,
1: absolutely. I mean, you can see there are examples in Oriental uh, stories of this kind of thing, but it did not become a social system. It has now become the, the ideal, at any rate, of, of love in the
2: Western world love from one's own experience.
1: you right. It's a very mysterious thing, uh, that electric thing that happens. And then the, the agony can, that can follow, which is that which uh, the troubadours celebrate, you know, the agony of the love, the sickness that the doctors cannot cure, the wound that can be healed only by the weapon that delivered the wound. Meaning? Well, the wound is the wound of my passion and agony of love for this creature. And the only one who can
2: heal thee is the one who delivered the blow, you know. So we often hurt most of the person we love and heal the hurt by the love that hurt. (laughs) That's Something like that. That's the paradox of the job. What did you mean, Joe, when you said that the triumph of Tristan's view of love and vision of love, this beginning of romantic love in the West was libido over credo? Well, the credo I believe and I believe
1: not only in the laws but I believe that these laws were instituted by God and uh, there's no arguing with God I mean these laws are just uh, heavy weight on me and uh, disobeying those is sin and uh, it has to do with my eternal character
2: and the libido <clears throat>
1: libido is the impulse to life comes from where comes from the, the heart. And the heart is what? The heart is the organ of opening up to somebody else. That's the human quality, as opposed to the animal qualities, which have to do with, uh, primarily, with self-interest. Opening up to that which is other is uh, the opening of the heart. And that's
2: as the troubadours thought. It. it is the opening of the heart. I can certainly understand though why the church was threatened by this because how can you have a church if everyone's libido is is her own God why not why can't the church handle that
1: if you can if you can uh, uh, sanctify a marriage that has been arranged why can't you sanctify a marriage where two people have joined each
2: other so the courage to love became the courage to affirm against tradition whatever knowledge stands confirmed in one's own experience. Why was that important in the evolution of the West? Well, it was important in that it gives the West
1: uh, this accent, as I've been saying, on the individual. That he should have faith in his experience and not simply mouth terms that have come to him from other mouths. I think that's the great thing in the West the validity of the individual's uh, experience of what humanity is, what life is, what values are, against
2: the monolithic system. Was there some of this uh, in the legend of the Holy Grail? Yes. Wolfram has a
1: very interesting statement about the origin of the Grail. He says, the Grail was brought from heaven by the neutral angels. There was the war in heaven between God and Lucifer and the angelic hosts that sided one group with Lucifer and the other with God. pair of opposites, good and evil, God and Satan. The grail was brought down through the middle, the way of the middle, by the neutral angels. What is the Grail representing, then? Well, the Grail becomes the, what we call it, that which is attained and realized by people who have lived their own lives. So, the story, very briefly, is of this, uh, as I'm, I'm giving it now, as Wolfram gives it, but this is just uh, one version. Uh, the Grail King was a lovely young man, but he had not earned that position. And uh, the grail represents the fulfillment of the highest spiritual uh, potentialities of the, of the human consciousness. And uh, he was a, a, a lovely young man. And he rode forth from his castle uh, with the war cry, Amor. And uh, as he's riding forth, uh, a uh, Muslim, a uh, pagan warrior, a Mohammedan warrior, comes out of the woods... A knight. and they both level their lances at each other, they drive at each other, and the lance of the grail king kills the Mohammedan, but the Mohammedan's lance castrates the grail king. What that means is that the Christian separation of matter and spirit, of, uh, of the dynamism of life and the spiritual, natural grace and supernatural grace has really castrated nature. And the the European mind, the European life has been, as it were, uh, emasculated by this. The, The true spirituality, which would have come from this, has been killed. And then, what did the pagan represent? He was a person from the suburbs of Eden. He was regarded as a nature man. And on the head of his lance was written the word grail. That is to say, nature intends the grail. Spiritual life is the bouquet of natural life, not a supernatural thing imposed upon it. And so the impulses of nature are what give authenticity to life not obeying rules come from a supernatural authority that's
2: the sense of the grail and the grail that these romantic legends were searching for is the union once again of what had been divided the peace that comes from joining the
1: the grail becomes symbolic of an authentic life that has lived in terms of its own uh, volition in terms of its own impulse system which carries it between the pairs of opposites of good and evil, light and dark. Wolfram starts his epic with a short poem saying every act has both good and evil results. Every act in life yields pairs of opposites in its results. The best we can do is lean toward the light as they intend the light. And what the light is, is that of the harmonious relationships that come from compassion with suffering, understanding of the other person. This
2: is what the Grail's about. When we say God is love, does that have anything to do with romantic love? Does mythology ever link romantic love and God?
1: Well, that's what it did do. Uh, Love was a divine visitation, and that's why it was superior to marriage. That was the troubadour idea. If God is love, well, then love is God. Okay.
2: There's that wonderful passage in Corinthians by Paul where he says, love beareth all things, endureth all things. Well, that's the same business. Love knows no pain. And yet, one of my favorite stories of mythology is out of Persia, where there's the... Idea that Lucifer was condemned to hell because he loved God so much.
1: Yeah, that's a basic Muslim idea uh, about uh, Iblis, that's the Muslim name for Satan, uh, being the, God's greatest lover. Why was Satan thrown into hell? Well, the standard story is that when God created the angels, he told them to bow to none but himself. Then he created man, whom he regarded as a higher form than the angels, and he asked the angels then to serve man, and Satan would not bow to man. Now this is interpreted in the Christian tradition, as I recall from my boyhood instruction, as being the uh, egotism of Satan. He would not bow to man. Mm -hmm. But in this view, he could not bow to man because of his love for God. He could bow only to God. And then God says, get out of my sight. Now, the worst of the pains of hell, insofar as uh, hell has been described, is the absence of the beloved, which is God. So, how does Iblis sustain the situation in hell? By the memory of the echo of God's voice when God said, Go to hell. And
2: uh, I think that's a great sign of love, do you see? Well, it's certainly true in life that uh, the greatest tell one can know is to be separated from the one you love. Yeah. That's why I've liked the, the Persian myth for so long. Satan is God's lover.
1: Yeah. And
2: he has separated
1: from God and that's the real pain of Satan.
2: You once took the saying of Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You once took that to be the highest, the noblest, the boldest of the Christian teachings. Do you still feel that way? Well, I, I think the main teaching of Christianity is love
1: your enemies. Hard to do. I know. Well, that's it. I mean, when, when Peter drew his sword and cut off the, uh, the servant's ear there in the Gethsemane affair, and uh, Jesus says, put up your sword, Peter, and put the ear back on. Peter has been drawing his sword ever since. And uh, one can speak about a Petrine or Christian Christianity in that sense. And uh, I would say that the, the main doctrine of Christianity is the doctrine of agape, of, of a true love for
2: he who is your, him
1: who is your enemy.
2: How does one love one's enemy? without condoning what the enemy does, accepting his aggression.
1: Well, I'll tell you how to do that. Do not pluck the moat from your enemy's eye, but pluck the beam from your own, do you know? Now, I have a friend whom I met by chance, a young Buddhist monk from Tibet. You know, in 1959, the communists crashed down and bombed the palace of the Dalai Lama, bombarded Lhasa and people murdered and all that kind of thing. And the escape, he escaped at the time of the Dalai Lama. And uh, those monasteries, I mean, there were monasteries with 5,000 monks, 6,000 monks, all wiped out, tortured and everything else. I haven't heard one word of incrimination of the Chinese from that young man. There is absolutely no condemnation of the Chinese here. And you hear this from the Dalai Lama himself. Mm. Uh, You will not hear a word of condemnation. This recognition of the way of life through which that vitality of the spirit is moving in its own way. I mean, these men are sufferers of terrific violence, and um, there's no animosity. I learned religion from that.
2: Do most of the stories of mythology from whatever culture say that suffering is intrinsically a part of life and that there's no way around it? I think I'd be willing
1: to say that they, uh, they do. I, I can't think of anything now that says uh, if you're going to live, uh, you won't suffer. It'll tell you how to understand and bear and interpret suffering. That it will do. And when the Buddha says there is escape from suffering, the escape from sorrow is nirvana. Nirvana is a psychological position where you are untouched by desire
2: and fear. But is that realistic? Does that happen? Yes, certainly. And your life becomes what? harmonious,
1: well-centered, and affirmative of, of life. Even with suffering. Exactly. There's a passage in Paul's uh, epistle to the Philippians, isn't there? Be as Christ, for Christ did not think Godhood something to be hung on to, to be clung to, but to let go and came down and took life in the form of a servant a servant even unto death. let sake, come in and accept the suffering and, and, and uh, affirm
2: it. So you would agree with Abelard in the 12th century who, who said that Jesus' death on the cross was not as ransom paid, as a penalty applied, but it was an act of atonement. At-tonement at one with the race. That's the around.
1: most sophisticated interpretation of why Christ had to be crucified. Abelard's idea was that this, oh, this is connected with the grail king and everything else, that the coming of Christ to be crucified and illustrating thus the suffering of life removes man's mind from commitment to the things of this world in compassion. It's in compassion with Christ that we turn to Christ. And so the injured one becomes the savior. It is the suffering that evokes the humanity of the of the human heart.
2: So you would agree with Havillard that mankind yearning for God and God yearning for mankind in compassion met at that cross.
1: Yes, and if, by contemplating the cross, you are contemplating the the true mystery of, of life. And that love for this experience, no matter how horrific the experience, they, they love for it. So there's joy and pain in love. Yeah, there is. I mean, love, you might say, is the burning point of life. And since all life is sorrowful, so is love. And and the, the stronger the love, the the more that pain, but love bears all things. Love itself is a pain, you might say, that uh, is the pain of being truly alive.
2: Once upon a time, so long ago it no longer matters how long ago, the feminine figure of the goddess ruled mythology as the equal of the male. The Greeks even gave her top billing. From chaos, they said, from nothing came Mother Earth, known as Gaia, and Sky, Uranus. They bedded, and from their coupling came six twins known as the Titans and three giants known as Cyclopes, each with 50 heads and 100 arms. Uranus was disgusted and forced them to return to their mother's womb, whereupon an indignant Gaia set out to make him pay for the insult. When Uranus came to their bedroom for his usual favors, she recruited one of their sons to make a sickle, and together they took from Uranus what he was most unwilling to give up and dropped the bloody thing in the sea. The lesson was not lost on the Greeks. It isn't nice to fool with Mother Nature. Joseph Campbell liked that story and told it to me when we were talking one day about how patriarchal authority finally drove the goddess from the pantheon of imagination, somehow The old guys figured that if they wanted to control the world, they had to change the metaphors, and the goddess had to go. She remained the symbol of fertility, crucial to humanity's survival, but no equal, except rarely in the exercise of power. The repercussions have played out down the centuries and are still with us. We return now to our conversation. The Lord's Prayer begins Our Father, which art in heaven. Could it have begun our mother?
1: This is a metaphorical
2: image. This is a symbolic
1: image. And to make the point that it's not your father, your physical father, we have our father who art in heaven. But heaven again is a symbolic idea. Where it would heaven be? It is no place. All of the references of uh, religious and mythological images are to planes of consciousness or fields of experience potential in the human spirit. And these are to evoke uh, attitudes and experiences that are appropriate to a meditation on the mystery of the source of your own being, I would say. So there have been systems of religion where the mother is the prime parent, the source, and she's really a more Um, immediate parent than the father, because one is born from the mother, and then the first experience of any infant is the mother, so that the image of woman is the image of the world. You might say that mythology is simply a translation of the world into a mother image. We talk of Mother Earth and so forth.
2: But what happened along the way, Joe, to this reverence that in primitive societies was directed toward the goddess figure, the great goddess, the mother earth. What happened to that?
1: That comes in primarily with agriculture and the agricultural societies. Fertility and all of that? It has to do with the earth, the the human woman does give birth as the earth gives birth to the uh, the plants. She gives nourishment as the plants do. So woman magic and earth magic are the same. They are related. And uh, the personification then of this energy which gives birth to forms and nourishes forms is properly female. And so it is in the agricultural world of ancient uh, Mesopotamia, the Egyptian Nile, but also in the earlier planting culture systems that the, uh, the goddess is the mythic form that is dominant.
2: Because of this obvious perception of creation issue. That's right. And when you
1: have a goddess as the creator, it's her own very body that is the universe. She is identical with the universe. And in Egypt, uh, you have the the mother heavens, Newt, the goddess Newt, who's represented as the whole heavenly sphere.
2: I was really taken when we went to Egypt upon first seeing the figure of Newt in the ceiling of one of those temples. Yes, I know it, the temple. It's overwhelming. Yes. There's one scene of her swallowing the
1: sun. The idea is that uh, she swallows the sun in the west and gives birth to the sun in the east and it passes through her body at night.
2: And, uh, and so she is the heaven. So it would be natural for people trying to explain the wonders of the universe to look to the female figure as the explanation for what they saw in their own lives.
1: Not only that, but then when you move to a philosophical point of view, the female represents what, uh, in the Kantian terminology, we call them the forms of sensibility. The female represents time and space itself. She is time and space. And the mystery beyond her is beyond pairs of opposites. So it isn't male and it isn't female. It neither is nor isn't. But everything is within her, so that the gods are her children. Everything you can think of, everything you can see, is the uh, production of the goddess. Oh, this is a wonderful story. The Vedic gods are together and they see a strange sort of amorphous thing down the way, like a kind of smoky fog. And they say, what's that? I don't know what it is. And uh, Agni, the god of fire, says, "Um, I'll go find out who that is. So he goes up to this smoky thing and he says, who are you? And from the smoky thing, the voice says, who are you? And he says, I'm Agni. I'm the Lord of Fire. I can burn anything. And out of the fog there comes a piece of straw. It falls on the ground. It says, let's see you burn that. He can't burn it. He goes back he says, this is strange. Well, Vayu, the Lord of Wind, says, I'll try. So he goes. And the same thing. I can blow anything around. He throws it down. Let's see you blow that. But well, he can't. He goes back a woman arrives, a beautiful, mysterious, mystic woman, and she instructs the gods and tells them who that is. That is the ultimate mystery of being from which you boys have received your strength and he can turn it on or off for you, you know? And there she comes as the one who illuminates the gods themselves concerning the ultimate ground of their own being. It's the female wisdom. It's the female as the giver of forms. Oh. She is the one who gave the forms, and we, she knows where they came from.
2: I wonder what it would have meant to us if somewhere along the way we had begun the prayer, our mother, instead of our father. What psychological difference would it have made?
1: Well, it makes a psychological difference in the, in the character of the cultures. You have the basic birth of civilization in the Near East with the great river valleys then as the the main source areas, the Nile, the Tigris, Euphrates, and then over in India, the Indus Valley and later the Ganges. This is the world of the goddess. All these rivers have goddess names finally. Then there come the invasions. Uh, These fighting people are hurting people. The Semites are herders of goats and sheep, and the Indo-Europeans of cattle. They were formerly the hunters. They translate a hunting mythology into a herding mythology, but it's animal-oriented, and when you have hunters, you have killers, uh, and when you have herders, you have killers, because they're always in movement, nomadic, coming into conflict with other people, and they have to c- conquer the area they move into. This comes into the Near East. And this brings in the warrior gods,
2: like Zeus, like Yahweh. The sword and death instead of fertility. Right. Particularly the Hebrews.
1: They really wipe out the goddess. Uh, The term for the goddess, the Canaanite goddess that's used in the uh, Old Testament, is the abomination And uh, so many of the Hebrew kings are condemned in the uh, Old Testament for having worshipped on the mountaintops. Mm -hmm. That's the goddess. And uh, there was a very strong accent against the goddess in the Hebrew, which you do not find in the Indo-European. There you have Zeus marrying the goddess, and, and then the two play together. I think it's an extreme case that we have in the Bible and our own Western uh, subjugation of the female is really, I think, a function of, of biblical
2: thinking. Because when you substitute the, f- the male for the female, you get a s- different psychology, a different cultural well, per- bias. Particularly
1: if you cut the female out and, and don't have any... I mean, if, if the male is on top like this, Uh, and the female is the subordinate all the way, you have a totally different system from that when the two are
2: facing each other. And it's permissible in your culture to do what your gods do, so you just... Well, that's exactly it. So I would see uh,
1: three uh, situations here. One, the early one of the sheer goddess when the male is hardly uh, a significant uh, divinity. You see, she is the total thing. And then this other one of the Hebrew of the goddess, the male, the total thing. In fact, he takes over her role. Uh, and and finally, then the the classical one, where the two are in interaction.
2: There are women today who say that the spirit of the goddess has been in exile for five thousand years since the events. Well, not
1: that you-, that, you can't put it that far back. Five thousand years. Uh, she was a very potent figure in Hellenistic times in the Mediterranean, and uh, <clears throat> she came back. Uh, with the Virgin in the Roman Catholic tradition. I mean, you don't have a tradition with the goddess celebrated any more beautifully and marvelously than in the 12th and 13th century French cathedrals, every one of which is called Notre Dame.
2: What about the virgin birth? Suddenly the goddess reappears in the form of the chaste and pure vessel chosen for God's action. Well, in
1: the history of Western religions, this is an extremely interesting development. The virgin birth comes in by way of the Greek tradition. When you read your four Gospels, the only one with the
2: virgin birth in it is the Gospel according to Luke. And Luke was a Greek. And there was in the Greek tradition uh, images, legends, myths of virgin births? All of them. I mean, the leader and the swan and Persephone and the
1: serpent and this one and that one and the other one, the virgin birth, is, uh, is represented
2: throughout. This was not a new idea then in Bethlehem? In no. Uh,
1: what is the meaning of the virgin birth? In India, there's this, uh, this system of the Kundalini, as it's called, the idea of the... Uh, the centers, the psychological centers, up the spine. And they represent the psychological planes of concern and consciousness and action. The first is at the rectum, and this is that of alimentation. The serpent represents this, you know, a traveling esophagus going along just eating, 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 eating. And all of us, are pro- we wouldn't be here if we weren't eating. And then the second, the second center is at the sex organ center and that's the urge to procreation. And the third center is, called, is at the navels uh, and uh, this is where you eat and want to consume. And uh, it's not the alimentary eating, it's the mastering and smashing and the uh, trashing of others. You see, this is the aggressive mood. Now, the first is uh, 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 an animal instinct. The second is an animal instinct. The third is an animal instinct. And these three centers are located in the the pelvic basin, you see. Mm -hmm. The next one is at the level of the heart. And this is the opening of compassion. And there you move out of the field of animal action into a field that is properly human and spiritual. Now, in each of these centers there is a symbolic form. At the base, the first one, there is the form of the lingam and yoni, the male and female organs in conjunction. At the heart chakra, there is again the male and female organs in conjunction, but in gold. This is the virgin birth. It's the birth of spiritual man out of the animal man. Do you understand? What and I'm it saying? happens. When you are awakened at the level of the heart to compassion and suffering with the other person. That's the beginning of humanity. And the
2: meditations of religion properly are on that level, the heart level. You say it's the beginning of humanity, but in in these stories that's the moment when gods are born the virgin birth it's a god who emerges from that chemistry
1: and you know who that god is? it's you all of the symbols in mythology refer to you you can get stuck out there and think it's all out there and so you're thinking of jesus and and, uh, all the sentiments about how he suffered and all what that suffering is is what ought to be going on in you have you been reborn? Have you died to your animal nature and come to life as a, as a human
2: uh, incarnation?: Why is it significant that this is of a virgin? Well, it is that uh, the begetter is the
1: spirit. It is a spiritual birth. The virgin conceived of the word, but through the ear. The word came like a shaft of yes. light.. And now, the Buddha was born from his mother's side at the level of the heart chakra. That's a symbolic birth. He wasn't born uh, from his mother's side, but But symbolically he was. But
2: the Christ came the way you and I come. Yes, but of a virgin. Which is a power greater than... And then, according to Roman
1: Catholic doctrine, her virginity was restored. So nothing happened physically you might say. It's not a physical birth, it's symbolic of a spiritual transformation, that's what the virgin birth is about. And so deities are born that way who represent beings who act in terms of compassion
2: and not in terms of the lower three centers. If you go back into antiquity, do you find images of the Madonna as the mother of the savior child? Well, what you have as
1: the model for the Madonna actually is Isis with her child Horus at her breast. This was the actual model for the Madonna symbol. Isis? Tell me that story. This is a, a prime myth in the uh, in the In this um, period of the goddess as the redeemer, the one who goes in quest of the lost spouse or lover, and uh, through her loyalty and uh, descent into the realm of death recovers him. Isis and her husband Osiris were twins who were born of the goddess nut, and uh, their younger uh, relatives were Set and Nephthys, who were also twins born from Newt. Set planned to kill his brother Osiris, and he took Osiris's measurements secretly and had a wonderful sarcophagus built that would exactly fit Osiris. So there was a hilarious party in progress one time among the gods, And set trots in this sarcophagus and he says, anyone whom this perfectly fits uh, can have it as his sarcophagus. And everybody at the party tried. And when Osiris got in, of course he perfectly fit, just at that time, 72 accomplices come rushing out, and they clap the lid on and strap it together and throw it in the Nile. Now this is the death of the god. Whenever you have a death of an incarnation a god like this, you're going to have a resurrection. You can wait for that. So he goes floating down the Nile and um, is washed ashore in Syria. And a beautiful tree grows up and incorporates the sarcophagus in its own trunk. So this is this wonderful tree with glorious aroma. And the uh, local king has just had a, a son born to him. And he is also at the same time going to build a palace. The aroma of this tree is so wonderful. He cuts it down and brings it in to be a central pillar in the main room of the palace. Poor little Isis, whose husband has been thrown into the Nile, starts this wonderful quest for... Osiris. So she comes to the place where the palace is and uh, learns of the uh, wonderful aroma and she suspects this is Osiris and uh, she gets a job as nurse to the just born little child. Well, she lets the child nurse from her finger and she loves the little child, and she decides to give it immortality. So she does this by placing him in the um, fireplace, in the fire, to burn away gradually his uh, mortal body. But at uh, being a goddess, she could keep that from killing him, do you understand? And when that would happen, she would convert herself into a swallow and fly mournfully around the pillar where her husband is. Well, one evening, the child's mother came into this room uh, while the scene was in progress, so her child in the fireplace let out a scream, and uh, that broke the spell, and they had to rescue the child uh, from incineration. Meanwhile, the swallow had turned into this gorgeous nurse, Isis, and the nurse gave an explanation of the situation, and she said, um, by the way, uh, it's my husband that's in that." that pillar there, and I'd be grateful if you could uh, just let me take it home. So the king came in and he said, certainly. So he removes the pillar, uh, gives it to Isis, and is put on a barge. So on the way back to the Nile, she removes the lid, the cover of the sarcophagus, and lies on top of her dead spouse and conceives of her dead spouse. This is an image that occurs in Egyptian art all the time. Out of death comes life and all this kind of business. And when they land, she in the papyrus swamp gives birth to her child Horus with the dead Osiris beside her. This is the motif for the, the Madonna, actually. It becomes the Madonna. In Egyptian, uh, symbology, Isis represents the throne. The pharaoh sits on the throne of Isis mm. as the child sits on the mother lap. And when you look in the Cathedral of Chartres in the West Portal, you will see the Madonna as the throne with the little child Jesus as the world emperor on her lap. That is the same image that's come over. And you say the Christian fathers took this image? Definitely, and, and they really say so. Uh, you read the second uh, letter of Peter, and he says, those forms which were merely mythological forms in the past are now incarnate and actual in our Savior. They, they were, it was a mythology of the Savior, the dead and resurrected God. And it's associated with the moon, which dies and is resurrected every every month. And you have the three nights dark, and you have Christ three nights in the tomb, and three days in the tomb, and all this kind of thing. It's an intentional uh, saying, that which was merely talked about is now fact. And no one knows what the date of Christmas ought to be, but it's put on the date of the summer of the winter solstice, when the nights begin to... Be shorter, and the days longer, the birth of light, and so there is an idea of uh, death to the past and birth to the future in our lives and in our thinking all the time. death to the animal nature, birth to the spiritual, and these symbols are talking about it one way or another. So when the council- and the goddess is the one who brings it about, the second birth is through the second mother. Notre Dame de Paris, Notre Dame de Chartres, our mother church. We are reborn
2: by entering and leaving a church. And it doesn't mean physically, it means spiritually. That there's a power that's unique to the feminine principle. It can be put that way. You can.
1: It's not necessarily unique to her. You can have rebirth through the through the male also, but using this system of symbols, right. uh, the woman becomes the
2: regenerator. There's that wonderful saying uh, in the New Testament of Jesus. In Jesus, there is no male or female. In in the ultimate sense of things, there is neither. That would have to be. I mean, if Jesus
1: represents the the. Uh, source of our being. We are all, as it were, thoughts in the mind of Jesus.
2: He is the word that has become flesh in us, too. You and I would possess characteristics that are both male and female. Well, actually,
1: uh, the body does but sometime in the fetal period it becomes apparent that this is going to be male and this is going to be female. Meanwhile, it's a kind of
2: neutral body with the potentialities for either inflection. So all through life we are honoring or suppressing one or the
1: other. And in that Yin Yang figure from uh, China, you know, in the dark, fish or whatever you want to call it, there's a light spot, and in the light one, there's a dark spot. That's how they can relate. You couldn't relate at all to something that, uh, of which you did not participate, into which you did not participate at all. That's why the idea of God as the absolute other is a, a, a ridiculous idea. There could be no relationship to that which is absolute
2: other. The question arises, discussing the male-female principle, the virgin birth, the spiritual power that gives us the second birth. The wise people of all time have said that we can live the good life if we learn, in fact, to live spiritually. But how does one learn to live spiritually when one is of the flesh? Remember Paul said the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. How do we learn to live spiritually? Well, that was the
1: in ancient times and in primitive times uh, the business of the teacher. He was to give you the clues to a spiritual life. That was what the priest was for. Also, that was what the ritual was for. A ritual can be defined as an enactment of a myth. By participating in a, in a good, sound ritual you are actually experiencing a mythological uh, life and uh, it's out of that that one can learn to live spiritually. And these stories of mythology
2: actually point the way to the spiritual life.
1: Yes, you've got to have a clue. Uh, you've got to have a roadmap of some kind and these
2: are all around us. They're, they're, they're here. And the roadmap to which the goddess stories are, are pointing is the map of, of elevating the spiritual to an equality with the physical so that you live in union with those two. Yes, there you, you come to the real
1: sanctity of the earth itself because that is the body of the goddess. When Yahweh creates, he creates of the earth and breathes his life into it. He's not there. She's there. Your body is her body.
2: And there's that kind of identity. Well, That's why I'm not so sure that the future of the race and the salvation of the journey is in space. I think it is well right here on Earth in the body, in the womb of all of our beings. Well, it certainly is. I mean,
1: when you go out into space, what you're carrying is your body. And if that hasn't been transformed, space won't transform it for you. But thinking about space may help you to realize something.
2: You certainly thought about space in this wonderful passage. You're describing a page out of the National Geographic Atlas of the World, but you read this and something happened to you. What
1: this page is open to me was the vision of a universe of unimaginable magnitude and inconceivable violence. Billions upon billions, literally, of roaring thermonuclear furnaces scattering from each other, each thermonuclear furnace being a star, and our sun among them, many of them actually blowing themselves to pieces, littering the outermost reaches of space with dust and gas, out of which new stars with circling planets are being born right now. And then from still more remote distances beyond all these, there come murmurs, microwaves, which are echoes of the greatest cataclysmic explosion of all, namely the Big Bang of creation, which according to recent reckonings must have occurred some 18 billion years ago. That's where we are, kiddo. And uh, to realize that, you realize how really important you are, you know? One little micro bit in this great magnitude. And then out of that must come the experience that you and that are, in some sense, one, and uh, you partake of all of that.
2: And it begins here. It begins here.
0: Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta-sheeple narrative, my email address is alpha male Buddhist at gmail.com. My website is alpha male dot pod dot com. My Instagram is alpha male And check out my YouTube channel, Alpha Male Buddhist, and that's on YouTube. It is the podcast accompanied with video clips